you could imagine a world that was exactly the kind of world you would want to live in forever, what would it look like? What would be present? What would be absent? If you could imagine a world that perfectly suited you in every respect, what would you put in that world? What would you make sure didn't exist in that world? What would that world be like and how would you describe it? Well, that's the kind of world we want to talk about today, the kind of world that people could always wish for, always wish to inhabit, the kind of world that doesn't exist today, but that will exist one day. And that's the promise. That's the promise that God gives us in the book of Revelation. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, the program where we stretch each other's understanding of the Bible, and we grow each other's faith because we are convinced faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we want to have that kind of confidence. We want to trust Him absolutely. And so we build on what the Bible says, we challenge our understandings, we correct our misunderstandings, and we deepen our commitment to have faith in God. I am the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, where we've been talking about the things in the book of Revelation, and so we're going to continue that today here on the program. We're going to help us ourselves understand that a little bit better, and we're going to try to not be afraid. One of the things people bring to the book of Revelation is fear. Uh, let me just ask you for right now just to to determine, make up your mind, you're not going to be afraid when we start talking about these things. You're going to listen to what God says, and you're going to allow the book of Revelation to speak, how should we say, on its own terms, so we don't read into it and we don't misunderstand it. We do our best to understand it, because that's what God wants for us. God doesn't hide things from us. God wants us to understand what we need to know. And so that's kind of the way we want to approach the book of Revelation as we look at part of it today. Now, Revelation, as a book, calls itself an apocalypse. Now, what that means is that's an unveiling. In fact, Revelation literally means apocalypse or unveiling. So what's going on here is that God wants us to know what we need to know. And so that's one of the reasons we approach the Bible, including the book of Revelation, without fear, because we recognize that God is trying to communicate to us what we need to know, and he's going to help us sort through all of that. So put fear aside. Let's come and, and take a look at what God says, and let's let the book of Revelation speak to us in its own terms. Now, as we approach this, we, we need to remind ourselves of a couple of attitudes that I think are important when we begin to think about the end of time. Because to be sure, the Bible does talk about some fearsome things that will happen. But in Luke chapter 21, and you can go there and read it, the words of Jesus, starting at verse 25, we are reminded that yes, some fearsome things will happen, but we should simply stand up and look up, because when that stuff starts happening, our redemption is near. So that's good news. So we shouldn't be afraid when things happen. We all recognize we might not want to go through some difficult times. We're going through some difficult times in some respects now. 
So no matter what the circumstances, God's admonition to us is to stand up, lift up your heads. Your redemption is near. The second thing that's important that I think we need to bring to the consideration of, of things that sometimes alarm people is the realization that what Jesus said was we need to be ready. We need to be ready for his return. We need to be ready for the events of the end of time to take place. We don't need to be afraid of that. We need to be prepared for that. And so that's one of the other attitudes I think we need to bring to this conversation, because that is the point of the Bible. Trust in God, lift up your head, your redemption is coming, your redemption is near, Luke says to us, and be ready, because you don't know when this is going to happen, only God knows when this is going to happen, and we need to be ready. So let's take a look at what the writer John says to us in the book of Revelation. There are some interesting things that he unfolds, and we're going to look toward the end of Revelation for what we're looking for is what's going to happen and what's the goal that God has in mind. As he's been working in human history, beginning all the way back in the Garden of Eden, from the moment sin entered the world, God has been working, and he's been working for a great day that is summarized and explained to us in the ending chapters of Revelation. Very interesting that the Bible was assembled with Genesis, the beginning of human history, and then Revelation with the summation of what God has been working to accomplish in human history. So let's just start by reading the scripture. It's a little bit of a long passage, but I decided it'd be good for us to read it together because after all, the words that God has given us are a lot more important than the words that I say. So let's take a look and let's read quite a long passage, but quite insightful. And we'll unpack some of it as we go along. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel, of Israel's sons, were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its walls, 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as crystal. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedon, chalcedony, and the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, 
the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And that concludes the reading of Revelation, beginning with chapter 21, verse 9, and concluding with chapter 22, verse 5, a description of what God is up to and what he's going to bring to pass. So let's go down and take a look. And first thing we discover in, in the opening verse that we read is that there's an angel that's identified with the seven bowls of God's wrath that occurred earlier in Revelation. An angel comes to speak to John and it takes him in the spirit, it says in the scriptures. Verse 10, it describes that, that, that um, what would you say, uh, experience. That's what we would say, the experience that, that the, the angel came and carried John away in the spirit. So that reminds us that John does not speak on his own authority at this point. What it reminds us is that John is becoming and has become a divine spokesperson. The same way officials today sometimes have a spokesperson, John is now speaking, not on his own authority, but on the authority of God himself. In the United States, in the White House, when the spokesperson speaks for the president, they don't speak on their own authority, they speak on authority of the president. In the same way here, John is not speaking on his own authority. He makes it clear he is a divine spokesperson. He's telling us what has been revealed, unveiled, we might say, to him. So the angel takes him to a great high mountain so he can see what he needs to see. And a great high mountain in the scriptures is associated with, with gods. In the ancient Near East, they associated high mountains with gods. You probably remember the Greco-Roman god Zeus, their chief god, lived on Mount Olympus, up on a mountain. In the Old Testament, you probably remember references to pagan high places, well, they had this idea of God or gods on a mountain. Remember, Abraham went up a mountain to offer Isaac as a sacrifice in Genesis 22. When God led his people out of Egypt and led them to Sinai, God met Moses and by 
connection to Moses Israel on Mount Sinai. Moses went up the mountain to meet with God. When it came time to build the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon built the temple on Mount Sinai. So you see, a great high mountain would make sense to the readers of Revelation, and it makes sense to us when we make that connection, that this is the reason that's described as going to a great high mountain, because that's associated with God. Remember also that the sea was associated with chaos and evil. Now, we don't associate it so much that way in our time, but they did. And so this is making a distinction that this is a vision that comes from God. John is a divine spokesperson going up a high mountain to hear from God. And mountains throughout the scriptures and in ancient Near Eastern thought were associated with God or with the pagan people, with their gods. And John describes that he sees a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God. So what he is describing comes down from God. It's arrayed with God's glory. And we get some glimpse of that in the way he describes it, but it's really difficult for John to describe all of this. How do you describe God's glory? He does say that this radiance is like a precious jewel. And so that gives us an idea of, of the glory. But, you know, at some point in all of this, we have to start asking ourselves, is John writing what he literally saw, or is he trying to describe what no one has ever seen and can hardly imagine? You see, it's difficult for someone to put into words something they've never seen before and something for which they have no frame of reference. You know, we often describe things in terms of other things. Somebody says, and I know this has kind of become a, a silly standard answer, but somebody will ask, well, what does this food taste like? Something they've never tasted. And the common response is it tastes like chicken. Well, we don't know how to describe it because we don't know how to put into words that another person will understand that they have some connection, some frame of reference for. And so one of the things we have to ask ourselves all the way through this is, is John telling us literally what he saw? Well, maybe. Is what he literally saw exactly described in, in, in these words? Well, it's described in the way God wants us to, to understand them, but it's really difficult for him to put into words what he would see, because who could imagine all of this? You know, earlier I suggested we should imagine the world we want to live in. Now, John is describing that world, and he's never seen it. We haven't either. And so he's, he's doing the best he can to help us understand. And it's in these terms that God wants us to understand. So we kind of need to keep that tension. And we need to understand uh, what, what John Piper said. The term glory of God in the Bible generally refers to the visible splendor or moral beauty of God's manifold perfections. It is an attempt to put into words what cannot be contained in words, what God is like in his unveiled magnificence and excellence, end of quote. See, it's difficult to contain God in any way, much less in words. And so John comes up with this idea of radiance like a precious jewel, and it begins to give us a picture of what's going on here. Then he begins to talk specifically about the construction of the building in terms of what it looks like that he sees, what building materials and, and so forth. And so we're going to take a look at some of those specific things to help us begin to get a grasp of what John is seeing and is struggling to describe. So it begins, or he begins, we're going to begin talking about the walls of the city. Now, in ancient times, 
one of the things that people had to think about when they were establishing a city was its security. They needed a water supply and then needed a way to make sure of the security of the ancient city. And without a doubt, in those days, walls were essential for the security of an ancient city. Without strong walls, you were vulnerable to somebody who could attack you easily. So he starts by describing the walls. He doesn't give a specific height early on. He just says massive high wall. But he does tell us that these walls are 200 feet thick. Now, it goes without saying, that's a very thick wall. Now, for me, and I don't know whether this will mean anything to you, but maybe it'll give you a little bit of a way to imagine it. I, I started thinking about where I live, Cape Coral, Florida, and how I might understand the thickness of a wall. Well, Cape Coral was laid out in building lots years ago when it was first formed. And the building lots were 40 feet wide and 125 feet deep. So I got to thinking, well, maybe I could consider the width of a building lot, because when I drive down a street, I can kind of get a grasp of, of the distance of a building lot. Well, in Cape Coral, in order to build a house, you have to have two lots side by side. And some lots are built on three lot sites, but you have to have a minimum of two lots, two of these 40 by 25 feet lots. So the width of two developed lots is roughly the thickness of the walls. So you take 40 feet plus 40 feet is 80 times two, you get 160. Well, that's a beginning idea, but if you can find a three lot building site and that's next to a two lot site, then from one property to the other is the thickness of the walls. Our house happens to sit on a three lot site. So I can imagine from one end of my property to the south, to the end of the adjoining property to the north, that's approximately 200 feet, the thickness of these walls. They were massive to say the least. And maybe the reason God portrays them as so massive is that he's emphasizing the security and safety of the new Jerusalem. Remember in ancient times, the walls gave a sense of security and safety to the people, protection from those who would harm them. And perhaps part of what God is trying to portray to us and to them is this idea of safety and security. John goes on to describe gates. You have to have a way to get in and out of the city. And he describes 12 gates, three per side. So on the north, south, east, and west, there would be three gates on each side. And each of those gates was protected by an angel. 12 angels are described. And interestingly enough, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed on those gates. So you probably remember that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, when they had the sons, there were 12 sons, and each of them became a tribe of Israel. And so this is a way to include by representation that God is including the ancient people of God in the New Jerusalem. They were not left out, are not left out. They're included and they're represented by these 12 tribes. Interestingly enough, and we often forget that the book of Revelation, as we have it in our New Testaments, contains many allusions drawn from the Old Testament. And in Ezekiel chapter 48, there's a similar description 
of the new Jerusalem. So this is not entirely new news. We've been given a glimpse of it back from e Ezekiel. Well, the foundations are described in this vision that John has as 12 foundations. So we have 12 gates, we have 12 foundations, and he says the names of the 12 apostles are on the foundations. Well, that's interesting. We saw the names of the 12 tribes signifying the ancient people of God. Now God is saying that, and we also include the church. The church is also part of the city because it was the apostles that followed Jesus' ministry and established the church. So in a very concrete way, one of the things God is communicating to us is that the people of God in the Old Testament and New Testament will live together in his presence. It's a great, great thing. Well, we go ahead and continue this to consider the size of the city. So we've heard about the, the thickness of the walls, the gates on each side, the foundations. What about the actual size of the city? Well, 200 feet thick walls is a big deal. What about the actual area of the city or the size? Well, it's described in the scriptures as 12,000 stadia. It mirrors the gates and the foundations. Remember, there were 12 gates, 12 foundation stones, and here it says 12,000 stadia. So it's 12, 12, 12. Well, that's all well and good, and that's helpful for us to understand. But what's the length? What's the distance of 12,000 stadia? Well, you might be surprised, and maybe you need to sit down for this, but the length of a wall of one side of this city is 14,000 miles. Now that's a big city. We've got some big cities in our world, but we don't have any city that comes close to 14,000 miles on a side. So the north side is 14,000 miles, the south side is 14,000 miles, the east side and the west side are both 14,000 miles. It's a giant square when laid out that way. Well, how far is 14,000 miles? Well, I was trying to imagine that myself. I was trying to think, now, how do I get a grasp of how big this is? Because I've driven on road trips. I know something about driving a lot of miles. It wouldn't be surprising for me to drive north to see my family and to easily drive 3,000 miles in a round trip. But we're talking about 14,000 miles? That's just a huge distance, a huge distance. How do we, how do we put all that together? Well, I did a little work on the um, internet. And so I found a, a, a website that talks about as the crow flies. It's really quite fascinating. And, and what it tries to do is tries to give us distance as the crow flies. And, and it's still astounding to me. And I hope I did the math right. And I hope I understood correctly. But as near as I could tell, the distance from Cape Coral, Florida, where I live, as the crow flies north to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, is 14,000 miles. Now, that, that just boggles my mind. I don't know if it boggles yours, but it's a long way. See, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan is way north. It's a city that has its neighboring city on the other side of, of the river there, Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. So it's a long way from Cape Coral. And, and it's hard to imagine a city that would be that large on each side, but that is what the Bible describes. And, and we need to kind of come to grips with that. It's huge. I don't, I don't know all of the reasons God 
describe such a big city, maybe, I kind of like to think this, maybe what he wants us to think about is that the city's big enough for you. It's, it's big enough for everyone. It'll have ample space for all of the people that want to have allegiance and loyalty to God. So you don't need to worry about all the space being filled up. God's going to make room. So we have a beginning glimpse. We have gates. We have foundations. We have the names of the tribes of Israel on the gates. We have the names of the apostles on the foundations. We have a clear understanding that, that God is including people from the Old Testament and the New Testament up to the present age because it includes the church. We have 200-foot-thick walls, enormous, massive walls. We have a city of huge dimensions. But then it also says something very interesting because it describes the length, width, and height of the city as being the same. So we talked about the, the border of the city being 14,000 miles on one side. Well, that also means it's 14,000 miles up. Now, it's curious that the scriptures describe the city as a square, but I think God had a really good reason for that, and, and we're going to get to that, but let's just talk about it a little bit right now. The original concept of the holy place in the tabernacle and temple was envisioned as a cube because it was open to God for God to come down, and it was a, it was a large area, cube-shaped area. So maybe and likely God is communicating to us that this cube-shaped city is where he's going to live. His presence will be revealed. And of course, that is what we find out. It's really quite fascinating that God is making a parallel between the place where he lived, where his presence was among his people in the cube-shaped Holy of Holies, and this new Jerusalem that is shaped like a cube. Well, what about building materials? Well, we would think of some of the normal things that people would use lumber and concrete and stone and brick and things like that. But John describes some very interesting building materials. Now, I don't know. It's not beyond the realm of God to do this. I don't know if these were literally the stones that he talks about that, that were literally these precious stones for building material. You heard the list that we read. Uh, I, I, I just don't know how to grasp that. I, part of me wonders, is, is God helping us grasp something we can't grasp, and he's given us the best connection possible? How do you build a city using pure gold? Well, God can do that. It's no big deal to him. He can create all the gold he wants. So, but it is fascinating that the city is described in those terms. Now, one of the reasons likely is that the Old Testament connects the spiritual realm with precious stones. So we see that kind of um, connection and description in the Old Testament. So God is making a connection here that this is a spiritual realm vision of his presence. We also know that the high priest when, who would go into the presence of God to make atonement for the people, he wore a specific uniform, or we might say a specific outfit to do that. And on the breastpiece of the high priest, there were 12 precious stones. Now, these are not an exact correspondence to what's described here in the New Jerusalem, 
the connection here is that they were precious stones. And so we begin to, to start to imagine, well, what is God trying to tell us? And so clearly he's trying to describe something to us that, that is difficult to describe, that has a spiritual connection, that has some connection to our understanding that the high priest wore this, this uniform that had 12 precious stones on it. And again, maybe John was doing his best, all that he could do to describe something that he did not really know how to describe. Uh, that's not hard for me to imagine. I hope it's not hard for you. And, and clearly, and this is the other part that gives me such great encouragement to try to understand what God is saying to us in the book of Revelation. But clearly, God is using biblically familiar images to communicate the reality of the New Jerusalem. Now, keep that in mind, because I said at the beginning that Revelation is an unveiling. It's God showing us what we need to know. Nowhere does God ever promise, as far as I've ever been able to find, that he's going to tell us everything we want to know. He's God, and we're not. He knows what we need to know. We don't need to know everything that God knows. That was really part of the problem in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? When Satan tempted Adam and Eve, you'll be like God. So we have to come to grips with, hey, hold on a minute. God is going to communicate to us what we need to know, and we don't need to be caught up in trying to understand or know what he doesn't think we need to know. But we should take great comfort that he gives biblically familiar images to us to communicate what's coming. Well, and there's more to this story, and it gets even more fascinating as we go along. And in just a moment, we're going to take a break. But don't go away. The story is getting better and better. And we're going to continue to unpack and unveil what God is teaching us in the book of Revelation. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. We'll be right back. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. 
yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you friends to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. You're listening to Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. And we're really glad as a church to be able to bring you this opportunity to, to stretch your faith and to develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we want you to develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, but occasionally you find out that, that I make a boneheaded mistake. You ever made a boneheaded mistake? Uh, a few minutes ago, I said, that the size of the city is 14,000 miles. That's make that 1,400 miles. That's a huge difference, don't you think? But it's 1,400 miles that's described. It's still a very large city, but uh, rewind your thinking and correct that. The walls are 200 feet thick, 1,400 miles in length. That is the distance from Cape Coral to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, not 1,000. Where was my head? It was someplace, but it wasn't in the right distance, that's for sure. Well, let's pick up what we're talking about. We've talked about the, the city, the New Jerusalem, and God's trying to help us understand what he's up to. We've talked about how John is speaking, not on his own authority, but as a divine spokesperson. The angel takes him up to a high mountain, which is associated with conversations with being in the presence of God. He talks about the holy city coming down from God. He describes the walls, 200 feet thick, three gates, with the 12 tribes' names inscribed on them, 12 foundations with the apostles' names to remind us that Old Testament and New Testament people are going to live together in God's presence. He describes a massive city of 400 miles on a side in the shape of a square, but really a cube, because it also talks about the height, talks about the precious stones that are used, and, and it reminds us of the difficulty that John was having to describe something that... Well, he had never seen and had no frame of reference to describe. So that's a little bit of the physical stuff. And let's talk about some of the other things that are related to the, to the story that God gives us. Like one of the things we learn in the passage that we looked at from Re Revelation chapter 21 and the first part of chapter 22 is that there are some things that are absent from the city. One of the things that's absent is there's no temple. Now, that would have been very significant in Old Testament times, a little bit more uh, unfamiliar to us because we don't think in those terms, but cities generally had a temple that identified their god or gods. So here, the absence of a temple is striking, but then it's explained to us that the city is the temple where God dwells, and we described that a little bit and made the connection between the cube shape and the holy of holies that represented God's presence among his people in the tabernacle and the temple. 
There's no temple needed because God's presence permeates the city. There's also no sun. Now, we have a hard time imagining how you couldn't have sun to provide daylight, but the scriptures say, as John tells us, that the glory of God illuminates the city. Well, that's pretty remarkable illumination, don't you think? Tells us that the nations will walk by that light. That's, that's pretty remarkable. It's hard to get our minds around a little bit. How could that be? But again, John is trying to describe to us what he's probably never imagined, certainly has never seen. We also know from the scriptures that light and dark can symbolize God's presence and absence. They also can symbolize good and evil. So when God is present, it's described as light. When he's absent, it's described as dark. And good is described in terms of light, and evil is described in terms of the darkness. So there's no temple, no sun, and remarkably, there's no night. Well, I don't know. It just made me think that this really is the city that never sleeps. Now, I've never been to New York City, but I've heard plenty of people describe it as the city that never sleeps. But here we have a city, and it's described as having no night. So does that mean it never sleeps? Well, we have some tantalizing clues. I'll let you draw your own conclusion. For one thing, we know the gates are never shut. Well, in ancient times, at night, they shut the gates. It was protection from a nighttime attack. Here, the gates are never shut. Well, there's no threat from evil because we learned earlier in Revelation, God took care of evil. We learned that nothing unclean is allowed in the city. No one who does detestable things or false things is allowed in the city. The only people allowed in are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So the gates are never shut. There's no threat. Well, that's a good thing. We learn one other thing is absent. There's no longer any curse. Well, what does that mean? Well, you go back to Genesis and you discover what happened after Adam and Eve sinned, then it describes the penalty for that. Now, with evil decisively dealt with, there's no longer any penalty, no longer any, as it describes it here in this passage, no longer any curse. You see, evil is gone in this city, gone, banished. What would we say? Done away with. Evil is just gone. So there'll be no more tears, no more death, no more grief, no more crying, no more pain. And the reason there is none of that present in the city is because God has taken care of evil, and evil is gone. And we need to try to wrap our minds around that. What is a world going to be like where evil is gone. I don't know if I know how to conceive that, but I'll try, and I know you will too. Well, we get a little more description of what's going on here, because John now says to us in the opening words of chapter 22 from Revelation, that there's a river of life in the city, and this river of life flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. It flows down the middle of the main street, so you get a picture, the main street in the city, the river flows down the middle of that street. Now, I don't know how you have a river and a middle and a street together like that, but God knows, and we can get the vivid imagery that this river is flowing from the throne of God down the main street. 
Now, you remember this water idea has connections in other parts of the scripture. Jesus promised living water to the woman at the well. You might remember that from John chapter 4. It says, I give you living water and you'll never thirst again. So the water imagery is a powerful reminder of some of these things. We also know from Ezekiel that he tells of a vision of a river flowing from the temple. That would be the temple in Jerusalem, east to the Dead Sea where the fresh water overcomes the salt water. Remember, the Dead Sea was dead because of the presence of salt, and so there were no living things there. So the fresh water from the temple flows east to the Dead Sea, where the fresh water overcomes the salt. There are trees along the side of the river, as Ezekiel describes it, and a large number of fish appear in the formerly Dead Sea. So this is a vision of a river like what we see from John's vision flowing from the throne of God down the middle of the main street. Ezekiel's vision is a little different than that from the temple to the Dead Sea, but the connection is clear. Zechariah also tells of a vision of a river flowing down from the temple, but in his vision, the temple, the, the, the river flowing from the temple flows both east to the Dead Sea and west to the Mediterranean. So there's another prophetic image that will help all of us connect to what God is describing here. doesn't give us every answer, but it sure gives us an imaginative wow. And then, of course, a familiar psalm that, that a lot of us will probably recognize that talks about a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. So that gives us a connection to this river that flows from the throne of God. Really quite fascinating, don't you think? Really quite encouraging to, to think about what God is doing by providing this river that flows, this river of life. Well, there's also a tree of life that's described in these verses. And, and did you know, I, I imagine some of you do know, maybe some of us don't know, that there's Revelation at Disney, and, and given Disney's reputation lately, you might be wondering, what? Revelation? Yeah, there's Revelation at Disney. In Disney World, in Orlando, Florida, there are a number of theme parks. And yes, at one of those theme parks, there's Revelation. Now, Disney might have thought it was their idea, because they call it a tree of life, but it wasn't their idea. They may hope that we don't notice the connection to God's revelation, but we'll notice. If we pointed it out to them, might they be a little chagrined by that? Well, maybe, but we aren't. See, right where it can't be missed, smack dab in the middle of what they call Discovery Island at Animal Kingdom, is this tree. It soars over its surrounding, it's quite spectacular, and they call it the tree of, wait for it, life. It has over 8,000 branches and more than 100,000 leaves. It's a spectacular sight. Now, what God describes in Revelation is pretty spectacular too, but, but, but just consider how, how the Imagineers at Disney came up with this idea for a tree of life. It's, it's, it's spectacular. I've seen it. Maybe many of you have seen it. But this tree they call the tree of life is not real. It's artificial. Now, I found that really curious that an artificial tree can be called a tree of life. 
Well, there's nothing artificial about God's tree of life in the New Jerusalem. It's described as growing on either side of the river of the water of life. So we see that we already saw in our mind's imagination, this river flowing from the throne of God in the New Jerusalem. And on either side of the river is this tree God calls the tree of life. It produces new fruit every month, and its leaves are for healing of the nations. See, God's tree of life really is a tree of life. Life-giving fruit, a little bit reminiscent of Eden, where Adam and Eve were told they could eat of the fruit of the trees. This one has new fruit every month. I don't know if that's a fruit of the month club, but let's not go down there. But anyway, you get the idea. And the really fascinating thing is that it says the leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. That's in verse 2 of Revelation 22. Healing of the nations. Wow, there's a need for that, isn't there? There's a lot of turmoil among nations, between nations, between groups of people that want to be nations. From the Middle East to Ukraine and Russia to North Korea and the conflicts there, I mean, we could probably list more than we want to think about. But here, God says that the leaves of this tree are for healing of the nations. See, God wants to bring about the kind of world we all want to live in. And one of the recipes of that world or, or expectations of that world is, is a nation that isn't at war with another nation. That isn't at war with another nation or another nation or another nation where all the nation's hurts are healed. All of the grievances from the past are healed. The leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. See, God's tree of life really is a tree of life, life-giving fruit and healing leaves. Now, some people might say, well, you can anticipate that day when there are tensions and turmoil between nations and when all that will be healed. Uh, some people might say, you can talk about that, but really that's impossible. But remember the disciples and Jesus were having a conversation one time and, and the disciples essentially thought what Jesus was describing was impossible. And Jesus said to them this very famous statement, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So let's not dismiss this tree of life. It's a new crop of fruit for every month, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. What a great, great, powerful image. So let's review a little bit, just to make sure we're keeping up with ourselves. We started out by saying that, that revelation is an unveiling. God wants us to know what we need to know. And so we're trying to understand here, we're understanding a lot of things in relation to other things that God has told us. Things from the Old Testament are mentioned in the book of Revelation. It draws a lot of its imagery and information from stuff that was already given to us from what we call the Old Testament. We recognize that John is speaking on his own authority. He's a divine sp spokesperson. He's not just telling a tale. He's speaking on God's behalf to us because God wants us to understand some things. He goes to a high mountain, which is reminiscent of meeting with God and reminds us even more that this is a vision that God has given to John for us. He describes this holy city coming down from God. He describes that as radiant, like a precious jewel. Uh, he describes it in, in words that kind of stagger us and make us wonder, 
well, really, is that literally what he's saying? Or is he just struggling to say something that will give us a, an idea of what he sees? Because what he sees is like nothing he's seen or we've ever seen. Huge, massive walls protect the city, 200 feet thick. Walls were essential for security. And so God is saying, you're going to be safe and secure with me in the new Jerusalem. There are gates on every side of the city, the four sides of the city, three gates each that are protected by angels. The names of the 12 scribes are inscribed on those gates. So there's a name on each gate and it reminds us that the ancient people of God from, from Israel are represented there and included there. Talks about foundations, 12 foundations. They are named for the 12 apostles. Reminds us the church is part of the city. God hasn't excluded anybody Anybody who wants to follow him is welcome there. Come on in, be a part. The people of God from the Old Testament through the New Testament and to the era of the church will live together in God's presence. In this massive city that's 1,400 miles on a side, just absolutely incredible size. It's shaped like a cube, which reminds us of the holy place in the temple and the tabernacle which reminds us that that's where God established his visible presence among the people. They couldn't see him, but they knew he was in there, and it gave them encouragement that their God was with them. Points to the fact that God said he's going to live with the people in this new Jerusalem. Points to the fact that this is a holy city. Again, we are reminded of the various building materials, the precious stones that are used, the gold. How to imagine that, I don't know. What God is trying to tell us, we can only imagine. And I don't think that's an overstatement nor sidestepping trying to understand. It's just recognizing that we need to let the Bible speak for itself and let it be there. We can only imagine what John saw because all we have is the words that he gave us to help us imagine that. We talked about what is absent from the city, no temple, no sun, no night, no, any, no longer any curse from sin. See, in this city, evil is completely gone. The glory of God illuminates this city. And that light is a reminder that the Bible uses light to talk about the presence of God, and God is present here. No longer any of the things that resulted from the entrance of sin and evil into our world will exist in this new world, because God dealt decisively with sin and evil. I think I said a few weeks ago that one of the really fascinating things about the Bible is that in a big picture sense, one of the things that God is working to accomplish all the way through and finally does accomplish here at the end of time is that he wants to deal decisively with evil and destroy it. Now, why does he want to destroy evil? Because evil hurts his creation, both people and the natural world around us. We learned that from the scriptures. And so one of the things God is trying to accomplish in, in the story of, of his people all the way from Genesis to Revelation is he's going to deal decisively with evil. And the other thing that he does is he provides a way to rescue his people from evil to atone for the evil so that his people can be redeemed. And so that reminds us that when all these things happen, we're supposed to remember that our redemption is near. 
Well, we go on looking at the city and we see the river of life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. We remember the woman at the well and the living water. Ezekiel had a vision of a river. Zechariah had a vision of a river. The Psalms talk about a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It's a refreshing vision. We talked about the tree of life, a tree literally that gives life because it gives life-giving fruit every month, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Just a stunning, stunning vision and image. Who could ever imagine that the, that the nation's frictions could be healed? But God says that's what the leaves of this tree are for, for the healing of the nations. And now we come to kind of the last, maybe, maybe most significant vision. It just really struck me as, as significant. Now, we, we're familiar with the idea that God lives with his people. Okay, we, we, we're familiar with that idea from Genesis because God talked to Adam and Eve. That was before they sinned. God was with them. We talked about, and we can remember that God was with his people when he led them out of Egypt, the cloud and the fire that led them on the way they should go to the promised land, led them to Sinai, that dwelt among them in the tabernacle. And when it was time to move, the cloud went forward and they followed God. He was with his people. We rejoice at Christmas and we say, God with us, Emmanuel. And we remind ourselves, God came in the presence, the physical form of Jesus to live with people. We remind ourselves that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, God's presence in and with us. And now we see God giving us another picture of what it means for his people to live in his presence. Verses three through five of Revelation 22, it says that that the people will see God's face. Now, all through the scriptures, this idea of seeing God's face is to be in his presence. And when God hides his face, he is absent. So the idea that, that people will see God's face is a reinforcement of the idea that we will be in the presence of God. It's also very interesting to, to notice that before this, people could not look on God's face and live, except with in in the person of Jesus, in that particular revelation of God. But previously, you couldn't look at God's face and live. It also talks about God's name being on the people of God's foreheads in the New Jerusalem. Now, that's really interesting and really important because when you had your name on or on your forehead, uh, or the, I should say it this way, when you have the name of God on your forehead, it indicates allegiance to God. Now, that seems a little odd to us. Why would we have our allegiance to God displayed on our foreheads by having God's name on our foreheads? That's just a little unusual. However, did you know that when the high priest entered the presence of God to make atonement for the people, he wore a particular uniform or outfit. We talked about that in relation to the, to the breast piece and the jewels on it and the connection to the jewels described as building materials for the city of God. But when the high priest went in to make atonement for the people, he also wore a turban with God's name inscribed on it. 
So a headpiece, we probably best understand it as a turban. So that gives us an idea. And on that turban was the name of God. And he wore that into God's presence. Now, this would not be lost on the people who understood the way the temple functioned and the role of the high priest. It's new news to many of us because we just haven't been aware of all those details. But now John describes God's people in the same way they would have known that the high priest went into God's presence. He describes all of us, God's people, having God's name on our foreheads and going into God's presence. Now, that's a, that's a stunning image because they knew, we know, that just anybody couldn't go in to the holy place, to the holy of holies. That was, that was a serious place. That was a sacred place. And you had to be the right person, properly prepared to go in there. And that right person, the high priest, properly prepared, wore a turban with God's name inscribed on it. And now John says, you and I, the people of God, can go into the presence of God in the same way the high priest did. Can you imagine? That's just, that's just amazing to think about. That's just amazing. But it all comes back to the reminder from God that bad things may happen, but stand up, look up, your redemption is near, don't be afraid. And from the parable of the bridesmaids, be ready. Be ready for the coming of the Lord. Today, you need to turn your mind and your heart to God, and you need to be ready. Trust him. Declare your allegiance to him, and he will have a place for you. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. We'll be back next week.